1: Leaders in education who are actually courageous enough to make real change in their learning community as they foster the growth of each young person in their care to ultimately thrive in a new world environment. These are their stories. Before we start our conversation with today's Game Changers guest, Phil. Can you share with our audience a little insight into a School for Tomorrow's 2021 School Development Programmes?
0: Thanks Adriano, of course. We are delighted to offer two exciting research and consulting packages that will allow you and your school to join with us in building the future of your school as a School for Tomorrow. The first package is our research program network where we're inviting schools to be part of the next stage of our global international research project. Our research focus will be on assessing character, competency and wellness. You
1: can also discover the educational consultancy package and full details of both awesome programs by contacting us at our website on www.aschoolfortomorrow.com.
0: Imagine that we can move beyond the stuff, the stuff of learning. The things that occupy us that seem to be important but are actually about that never-ending hamster wheel that drives educational processes forward again and again and again. Imagine if we could actually attack the important things in the world and frame an education around the problems and give it to the next generation to begin to craft the solutions. Tom Markham is an absolute pioneer. He's an absolute game changer in the whole area of problem-based learning. He's going to be talking with us today. Adriano, I can't
1: wait. Let's go. Phil, it is so wonderful to be with you again. And uh, I'm here in Melbourne. I know that this episode is being uh, going to be um, broadcast in 2021. But right now in Melbourne, while I still sit here in lockdown, I get to at least look at the sunshine that is outside Uh, How is Sydney treating you at this
0: point? Oh, Adriana, um, Sydney uh, Sydney is as beautiful as ever. It's been lovely having time with family and friends. I'm very much thinking about my friends and colleagues, including yourself down in Melbourne right now and hoping there's light at the end of the tunnel.
1: Well, I'm really excited about this particular episode today, I have had the great fortune of working alongside and learning from our esteemed colleague in Tom Markham a number of years ago, where we started to really unpack the possibility of project based learning and design thinking as being a construct for a new tomorrow. Uh, Tom, it's wonderful to have you with us. I'm gonna launch straight into the very first question. And that very first question is one we ask all of our particular game changers. And that is, can you tell us a little bit about your story and how you have gotten to where you are today?
2: I am not a career educator, Adriano, which uh, some people might find mystifying. I was in the classroom for a few years, but I found that when I came into high school where I first began teaching, what I was really drawn to was game changing, changing the system. Uh, from the very beginning, but I did feel that I needed to become a seasoned high school teacher familiar with the educational culture. If you've been in education as you have, you know that you have to be in it to understand it. It's a unique culture in many ways. And I was fortunate enough when I had that experience to actually be very early into project-based learning work. The reason for that is I'm in the next best thing to Australia, which is beautiful Northern California. And my part of Northern California was actually uh, a hotbed of project-based learning very early on. I am only located about 15 minutes from the Buck Institute, what is now known as PBL Works. Uh, My teaching partner in high school, where we worked together in academy, is now the executive director of PBL Works. And we began that journey in the late 90s, uh, working a little bit with the Buck Institute at that time and began to develop project-based work. Then went on, the school system became a little confining for that kind of work, so we moved on, actually left our positions, both of us at the same time, and founded a charter high school locally that was quite successful and that was entirely project-based for four years. Unfortunately, it didn't, Uh, prevail over the school boards that finance it so at the end of the day it did not last beyond four years but it was a great start on project-based work and I got a really good opportunity to see how you work with teachers and work with students to develop a successful PBL culture because culture as you know is everything with PBL you can't just use a traditional system and saying, oh, then I'm gonna do a little PBL. It doesn't work that way. And we can get into that topic a bit more. Um, At that time, uh, I went to work for the Buck Institute, which is again, was very close. I was close enough that I could bike to work, quite a privilege in those days. And um, I came to work in July of 2002. Uh, The Buck Institute at that time was a very, very small institution, had about five people, and all of them were on summer holiday. So the executive director said to me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sit down while we're all gone for two months, and I want you to write a new handbook on project-based learning. And That's what I did. And I took all that experience from the school and my teaching experience, and I wrote the handbook for standards-focused project-based learning for the Buck Institute which eventually sold 50,000 copies and probably earned about a million dollars. But more importantly, it became the book that was used by places like High Tech High or New Technology Schools as sort of a guide. I wouldn't say Bible, that would be a little strong, but it was certainly a really good reference and guide for them as they began to design project-based work. So that's really how I really uh, got traction in my career in PBL. So I stayed with the Buck Institute for Uh, several years and went on my own and did coaching all over the country. And one of the reasons I went out on my own is because because I began to see that project-based learning, well-being, and social emotional learning had a great deal of overlap, which really drives my work in project-based learning. So for me, project-based learning is not just simply an academic method it's actually a human development method it's challenge it's engagement it's collaboration it's problem solving it's sharing solutions so it's really mirrors in a way how we as either youth or adults solve our everyday challenges it's a very similar process and that's a very important lesson that i'm trying to spread pbl spread that lesson internationally it's a human development method which I believe is one reason that it is becoming so popular today and why it's really almost, I would say, probably one of the number one trends because it fits so well in the new environment that we are currently operating in, in which we have to pay attention to personalization, personal development, and academic mastery all at the same time.
0: Tom, there's so much of what you're talking about there that fits in really, really well with with what we at a school for tomorrow would call the whole of learning. It's the the connectedness of everything, that sort of ecosystem uh, nature of all of it. Um, You've you've worked with over 400 schools and over 6,000 teachers across five continents in introducing them to PBL and to, to help them to grow the culture in and around it. And you talk about it as being a game changer. Why do you think schools and teachers might be frightened to train students to be game changers?
2: Loss of control, that's the major issue, Uh, loss of control. Our entire educational system, whether it's really wherever you're talking about, Australia, US, almost every country, is really based on uh, controlling the system, controlling the outcomes, and to some extent, although we don't like to talk about this, regimenting students in order to achieve those outcomes. Project based learning is a different way of thinking about student growth and learning. It really is inherently a personalized process. It is designed for voice and choice. It is designed for fuzzy outcomes because you're not teaching to the test and you're not going through a problem solving process in order to identify a known solution. You're going through this process in order to invent a new solution that the teacher has never seen before. That's inherently an open-ended, open system kind of process that mandates a release of control. And I would say that if you were to ask me what is the chief issue with teachers who are trying to do PBL, is they either don't know how to release that control or their administration won't allow them to release that control, or they're not certain if they release control what the outcomes are going to be, and so it makes them nervous. And so those are the issues that sort of prevented. And I will say that once teachers get beyond that and break out of that system, then they find the real joy of open-ended problem solving, working as co-learners with students.
0: You know, it's, it's, it's interesting hearing you talk about control like that, because it's really the emperor's new clothes, isn't it? Because even in those schools that like to imagine, um, that everything is smooth and under control, there really isn't very much control going on. There might be some consensus, there might be some shared culture, there might be some um, principles around how you can kind of keep things together, but it's never really controlled, is it? Uh, and Adriano loves to talk about the notion of empowering people and to move towards, you know, the no, moving from school to community. So the notion of an empowered community becomes very important. How do you help teachers to shift from that that the mindset and the mechanics of attempting a control which never really occurs towards empowering a community?
2: It's a complex process, film, and it is not one that is accomplished in a one or two or three day workshop. It's not a training function. You can't actually train a teacher to do PBL. What you do is expose them to the possibilities and get them excited and inspired, inspired by looking at students who are, elated when they finish a project. Any teacher who has come into the profession with any ideals loves to see that. And when they see that, they see that something is possible. So it begins with possibility and them seeing that and seeing how students respond to that process. Then you move forward into really assembling what I call a knowledge base, knowing how to do project-based learning. Well, what are the best practices? What are the best methods? There is a methodology to project-based learning. That's what distinguishes it from just doing projects. And it's actually a deep and rather complex methodology. Becoming and being a successful PBL teacher is as complex a profession as any other in the world. You don't train for complex professions anymore. You have what I call a journey to competency. Inspiration, knowledge, experience, conversation with colleagues, feedback, try again, get better at it. That's how you create great PBL teachers.
1: So what about those educators, Tom, that have a real aversion to the inquiry or project-based learning? The ones that continue to say to us that all science and all research allegedly suggests that only direct instruction is the only effective method in supporting student memory and academic growth. What do we say to those individuals within the profession?
2: Well, let's, uh, I'll I'll resist the Temptation to be too flip and say, "Wait for them to retire," but uh, <laughs> the, you know, the I've had I well, this I I'll give you a good example. I am in conversation with a very well-known school in Sydney right now that is looking to do PBL uh, over the next several years and implement PBL. And the discussion they've had is, "Are we a PBL school? Should we strive to be a PBL school?" And I said, "Absolutely not." Because you don't need to do PBL 24-7 in every class. A much more strategic approach to that is to look at what parts of your curriculum in school are should be PBL oriented and what parts can be reserved for more direct instruction. I don't think there's anything wrong with students going through a six-hour day, having plenty of opportunity to do open-ended problem solving and projects, but at the same time doing some passive learning particularly if that if that teacher who's doing direct instruction is good at it. As I often like to say to teachers, all of us have sat enthralled for an hour or two in a lecture by somebody who knew what they were talking about and took us on their journey by just talking to us. So you can do that. It's a strategic decision. You just, as I like to say, you just want to make sure that your students at the end of, let's say in Australian term four, Just make sure that those students you have have had a significant opportunity to do meaningful project-based work. That's your goal. So much of what we have witnessed, particularly here in Melbourne under a lockdown scenario
1: and moving to a continuous learning kind of paradigm with this remote learning delivery model has been the intersection of synchronous and asynchronous learning. And that's really what you're talking about here, the opportunity for, for teachers to use some direct instruction in a very synchronous manner, but also for really strong opportunity to build that kind of self-efficacy, that adaptability, that self-regulation, all those wonderful skills that are transferable in life through a kind of asynchronous and approach that, that something like a design thinking framework has a real skill in, in, in achieving. I also love listening to you, Tom, because. There are some that dismiss PBL, thinking that it's total handing over total control to students, and there's an absence of knowledge, and that's a, that's an absurd um, uh, proposition that they keep throwing up there to be oppositional to 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 its introduction. Exactly. Not, knowledge is is an important component of, of everything that we do, and it's foundational, particularly around literacy and numeracy. But what's also equally important, I feel, is something that you are being a strong advocate on, and that is the new knowledge base really is our emotional competency and one that leverages the notion of a strength focused project-based learning, where you have this intersection between the learning, the knowledge and the skills, and of course the humanness of the individual. Can you talk to our listeners a little bit about what does that kind of self-determined model that has this inherent blend of, of the character, the competency, the knowledge and skill, and the individual's wellness, what
2: does that really look like in practice? I don't think we know yet, Adriano. This is something that is a work in progress and maybe a work that'll take some time. I believe that the challenge ahead is perhaps a little more daunting than we like to think it is, in the sense that just saying that we're gonna do personalized, passion-based learning, or students are gonna have voice and choice, and thinking that that's gonna be the end of the conversation, that's just the door into a many-leveled conversation. How do you help students become self-managing? entrepreneurial. What is the blend of skills and knowledge? What is the role of the teacher in terms of presenting knowledge at just the right time, just in time instruction? What is their role as a co-learner in helping develop these projects? So it's a huge shift. This to me is where the transformation is. I'm a little less interested in schools of tomorrow, and I'm sort of interested in students of tomorrow and how they are going to really make this change to, to teach, or train or support or help a student become self-managing in which they are the curriculum. As you said, the person is now the curriculum. Mm-hmm. It's not the stuff it's they are their own skills and behaviors and ability to be agile, flexible, entrepreneurial, communicative, collaborative, whatever we can, how are we going to define that? That is really how we we're going to have to form that up. My stab at it is that I have uh, developed what I call the project mindset. As a And that it's a, that's just a wheel. Other people have done this kind of thing. It's knowledge, skills, strengths, agility, entrepreneurship, collaborative ability, self-management, insight, resilience. That's a wheel of, of many different strengths and abilities that students will need to be developed successfully if they're going to really do this work more on their own and in an asynchronous way, because asynchronous means there's two days they're doing it on their own.
0: Tom, I'm really
2: interested in a lot of
0: what you're talking about, Um, you know, it's, of course, none of it's particularly new, you know, and there's there's three of us here and we're all in the second half of our lives here, shall we say, and so much of this stuff has been presented to our profession over many years now, it's perhaps been brought into relief, particularly over the last year when um, the members of our profession have uh, are starting to think about what they're doing and taking everything back to first principles because you know when, when you're going to a remote le- environment or a blended environment, a continuous learning environment as we call it, you have to think about what you're doing because the physical environment forces you to do that. It seems to me that so much of this is about risk and ideology. that there are those of us who love going on a bear hunt. You know, there are those of us who love to use the words of that, that beautiful children's book, you know, Um, uh, there there are those of us who love to go on an adventure. And then there are those who seem to have an almost ideological aversion to taking a risk and to doing something new. How do we take this away from the world of personal preference and ideology to something that's just simply evidence-based, and research-based, and there's enough evidence out there, there's enough research out there at the moment to say, this is worth doing, this is really worth doing. How, how do we how do we shift the mindset towards that?
2: Well, Phil, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but as somebody who's probably in the last quarter of my life, I'm going to be able to give <laughs> to you And uh, We're not going to be able to shift some minds. It's not going to happen. We cannot shift every mind. As I say to schools like the one I just talked about in Sydney, you're looking to get 40% of your faculty on board and committed. That's what you need. You need critical mass. You don't need 100%. And you're not going to get 100%. The, I believe this is sort of a strong personal opinion, perhaps not shared by everyone, but I believe that the world has really divided down into two types of people those who are hardened to the present and those who are open. To the future. And that line is very, very difficult to breach. For whatever reasons, we may not fully understand. You can see it in our politics, either in Australia or in the US, you can see these lines are drawn and it, it's a hard line. So there's something, as I often say, I can determine in five minutes who's going to be a good PBL teacher by sort of judging and sensing their openness, their openness to experience. And if someone is open to experience, they're gonna be a good PBL teacher if they are so inclined to do that. And someone who is not open is not gonna be a good PBL teacher. So this openness question is the one you're really talking about. Some people just aren't open. And honestly, I don't think you can train for it. I have not been successful. Of those 6,000 teachers, I can tell you, I've had more than a few standing at the back of the room with their arms folded looking at me with a semi scowl that this is not something I want to do, not something I intend to do, and you got paid to come here and talk to me, but that doesn't mean I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah, the body the body language is always a bit of a giveaway with that sort of thing. So if we're if we're dealing with a critical mass rather than the whole of the staff room, and if we can't change people's personalities around us, then to a certain extent the employment of this of this approach reflects the ambiguity of living in the world that we're in right now in any case doesn't it like if we've got this problem that seems to be a, an enduring reflection of human nature and the differences in human nature then that of itself is a, is, a, is a great challenge to be putting in front of our profession so much of what you're talking about is seems to me to be you know not just learning in practice for students but learning in practice for staff what does effective staff professional learning in PBL look like in practice. Maybe maybe tell, tell us about one of the schools you've been working with and what are they doing? What does it look like?
2: Well, before I launch into that, let me just say, Phil, that we need to remember that uh, the forces of light are on our side when it comes to training new teachers because more and more they are susceptible to the culture around them. And remember, we know that culture shapes thinking and culture shapes basically how your brain functions in a way. And so that old culture is dissolving, and we're gonna get more and more teachers who are open to these kinds of changes. So we're on the right side of history as far as this goes, I think. Now, how do you train? Um, As I said before, it's less a training function than it is, first of all, developing a shared mental model of knowledge. What does a really good project look like? And that is information and looking at exemplars and looking at what your colleagues are doing. and and looking at how a project is, a well-designed project is put together, how it's structured. And a well-designed project is structured around a problem. Now project-based learning really derived from problem-based learning. That's actually been lost a little bit in some of the current PBL. I have to remind teachers constantly to actually center your projects on a problem to be solved. But the problem and the challenge is what creates the depth for a project. If a student is confronted with an authentic, meaningful, Engaging challenge in which they're going to put those strengths and character and their their stomach and their heart into this. Then they're going. That's when the, their strengths are going to come out as they begin to attack this challenge. So the problem is is uh, paramount. So I spend a lot of time talking about what are examples of good driving questions and revising your question question or your problem statement so that you start off on the right track. That's probably the most difficult training function there is. Uh, teachers want to start with well, what is it? I, I talked to teachers um, this week, they were kindergarten, first grade teachers, the students were doing a project in which they were going to grow a plant, a very simple early primary project, and they said, I said, what is your problem? And they said, what, how do you, what, what is required to grow a plant? And I said, well, air, soil and water. That's not a problem to be solved. We went on to come up with a very good problem after some discussion and conversation how can i grow a plant that will make others happy either because it tastes good or is beautiful that's a great problem for a kindergartner or first grader that came about as a result of about 20 minutes of conversation and that's really the second aspect to building project is talking to teachers and with teachers about what their projects are going to be like and what they hope for. And one of the amazing things I have found over and over is that project-based work is highly intuitive. Teachers are carrying with them a feeling or a thought or a glimmer of an idea that they want to do. They just have a trouble not allowing that educational veneer to take over and put it in educational terms instead of standing back and opening themselves up to the true passion they feel. And once you, once you open teachers up in that conversation, 90% of the time they will present the project to themselves just in the course of having the conversation. So knowledge, conversation, and then testing it in practice with getting feedback. So coaching is really critical. Those are the three ways you get to really good PBL. Now you say what's happening in the schools that I work with, some of them follow that model and it works, others like shortcuts. Well, I'm just going to have my teachers take some courses. I I offer great online courses. You can take these online courses. You can get all the information you ever needed about PBL and more, plus a toolbox of so many different resources that you couldn't use them an entire lifetime. But that's only the start. You have to then have the conversation about how to put it in action, and that is what I call, as I said before, the journey competency and that is the way schools need to view it and that is the way I pitch it to schools you can't shortcut this you can't shortcut it
1: let's pause for a moment to remind our listeners of our upcoming global gathering on Wednesday the 15th of April
0: we are super excited to have international game changers Dwayne Matthews Jojo McEachan Zena Challenge and Parsi Salberg join us for an important conversation around crafting a new story creating a human centered technologically enriched, people, place, and planet conscious and intentionally purposeful learning ecosystem. That's so awesome, Phil. Tickets are still, of course, available
1: via our website on www.schoolfortomorrow.com. Register today. Let's
0: go. John, so I'm, I'm interested in picking up on that notion of building a mental model. Um, when part of the research we've been doing on, on this sort of the whole of learning and the, and the role of character and competency and wellness within that and how you put an education together for, it, you know, looking at the role of leaders around it. And in the first major study we did, which, you know, 40,000 kids, um, 10,000 teachers, leaders, uh, 50 schools around the world. When we asked leaders about what they did and to describe their leadership competencies, they're all pretty good at telling us about how they reacted to what was in the moment and things that worried them. They're pretty good at telling us, about the need to lead by example, not one of them gave us a model for their leadership. If we have schools where leaders have no mental model for their own leadership, how can we expect teachers to build epistemological
2: models, you know, models of knowledge and models of, of becoming, instead? Well, that's a leadership issue, which I assume that you're going to solve through the Game Changer podcast. But <laughs>
0: uh, look, we'll, we'll, we'll give it a good go. But but but
2: you, you I, I really can't it, speak to that. But what I can speak to problem, is yeah. that we need to have teachers need to see themselves as leaders. And as we know, and we've all heard, there are no experts right now. You have. Uh, I heard a head, headmaster yesterday say, "I feel like I'm a." a first year principal. So nobody's an expert right now. And I think I I preach all the time, teachers stepping up and assuming a leadership role and and a role as an expert in what they do. And I really encourage that in the, this, this last online course I'm putting up it's teachers as innovators. And every part of the course is about what are you doing? What is working that you're seeing? What have you invented? And I wanna start to share that out because we need to share inventions and inventions and inventions. We're seeing a lot of it. I mean, we're seeing some amazing stuff that teachers are putting together. That needs to go worldwide and become a whole set of well-developed practices. So that's the leadership role for teachers. I think it's a unique time to be a teacher. It's a wonderful opportunity and moment to step up as a leader in education. If you're a fourth grade teacher or you're a seven teacher, it's a great time to do that because there's so much room for you to offer your expertise. I'm really
1: in what you're saying here, you know, Tom, because I've always believed that uh, teachers are leaders. I mean, they walk into a into a physical classroom more often than not and ask people to follow them on, on a daily basis. I mean, you know, that's, and they've got to realize that, that they have a, a leadership capacity there. And, and for mine, the other component is, of course, I'm a huge advocate of design thinking and so much of design thinking is, is a great construct for a leader to kind of follow because ultimately it, it starts off from that listening component and that empathy component and it works through a, a process where, where there's iteration, iteration and iteration. Uh, some things will work, some things won't work, but uh, it, it's, it's, in, it's in that culture of seeing what's possible that keeps things moving. So I want to move then the conversation to to that particular kind of space, because one aspect of project-based learning is then the opportunity to integrate some form of formative assessment throughout this kind of learning continuum, because that's what really good iteration does, isn't it? It's it's, really good iteration is around a continuum of learning, because at each stage of thought and practice, uh, new things come to fruition. Can you, can you describe a little bit to our listeners what maybe formative assessment might look like in a PBL kind of construct?
2: Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that PBL is undergoing its own transformation. Part of the transformation is it is becoming a more of a well-being, social-emotional learning process. The second transformation is it becoming integrated with design thinking. Mm-hmm. It is because I don't see any really difference between design thinking and PBL. Design thinking fits very well inside a project. It's really the only way you can do a project is to do design thinking. So I sort of actually steer away from the term formative assessment, although I certainly understand what you mean. You are constantly tapping into this process. And by the way, a project is a process. It's a process of learning. As they often say, the process is the project. So, you're constantly tapping into that process and uh, taking the temperature of the learners, seeing where they're at, setting milestones. So there's a constant formative philosophy built into the process, I would say, Adriano. So rather than stopping and doing an assessment, which you can, you know, I'm very. I'm, I really advocate use, using strong milestones and deadlines in a project that students so sort of give you something so you see what their progress is. So that can be a test, that can be a quiz, that can be a discussion. It can be many, many ways to do some sort of assessment. So the formative assessment is built in there, and of course, the formative assessment only works if your formative feedback is equally good. Yeah, and that's that's really what you're looking at with teachers is the ability to give good feedback. And this is an interesting question because teachers are generally very skilled on marking an essay Mm -hmm. and telling you where you forgot to put in the particular punctuation, but they're not as skilled as giving feedback on process when two students or three students are working in a team, but not achieving their goals and trying to figure out what is preventing that team from working as well as they should. That's That's a coaching function that teachers are not generally trained to do. I spend quite a bit of time in my courses on that. What does it mean to be a PBL coach? And that means, from a formative standpoint, knowing how to approach your students. So in industry, the coaching protocols are very well established. How a a manager coaches employees. There is no similar kind of training in education for how a teacher approaches a group of students and coaches them to become better at the process. That's really generally not part of their training. And yet that involves strict protocols as well. Are you willing to be a listener? Are you present? Do you know when to walk away? All the things that good coaches do. So that's the formative process in PBL. Again, it can be a formal formative process with a test and a quiz, or it can be what I think is even more effective is sort of an informal process that is ongoing. And the student and teacher are really working together on the formative aspect. They aren't, the, te, the student isn't hiding anything from the teacher or attempting to score points. They're having a constant conversation about how well this process is going.
1: It's really interesting listening to you because I know in classes that I've, I've had personally and myself over the years, one of the practices that I had built into the kind of the structure of a unit of work was that every, every two weeks we would, we would pause as a class and I'd give them some prompts, prompting questions. And uh, what they would then do is go around and provide feedback to those prompting questions to other people's folios, right? So it's like, like a proper design studio where, where other designers are giving feedback about a progress at any given point. And uh, then the individual would come back, read those comments, but then also do their own kind of self-reflection and then post that. And I'd be part, I'd be going around the room writing comments as I go as well. And then post that, we would have like a a 15 minute debrief. What was quite remarkable about that, that kind of protocol that was developed uh, was that it was formative in many ways because it was actually focusing on primarily their intrinsic motivation and their self-worth more than the actual work itself. It was about a belief that they could do it. It was about a belief that they belonged. It was about a belief that they knew what they were doing. And to help young people believe that they can discover their kind of possibility was the most profound learning from that encounter. And that I've I've found that by the next two-week cycle, there was this exponential growth in their work because it became this intrinsic motivation to be better than they were yesterday, as opposed to an entr- extrinsic one, which was all just about a grade or, or, you know, or a ranking. And so, yeah, it's just really fascinating listening to you because it is this this human reflective process uh, that, when when built into into a really good PBL structure, I can just see any young person thriving because ultimately they're framing it. You know, they they take control.
2: When we look at the future here with uh, hybrid remote instruction uh, more personalized form instruction you uh, you, what you've just brought up is really probably our central challenge is how do we build that reflective uh, process uh, into a strong formative process that the student takes ownership of and grows from and i just this is a good point to say i have been doing some observing about which teachers are succeeding at online PBL and which are not succeeding or which actually teachers are succeeding in general online and not succeeding. The ones who have valued relationship and have strong relationships are succeeding and the kids are thriving. The ones who are still trying to teach the content and put kids in front of Zoom for six hours a day and including requiring that they have to wear their shoes because they can't be barefoot on Zoom. you know, those are the ones that are losing their students and reporting that nobody's showing up and uh, where the students go and why these students have cutouts of themselves in front of the screen and they're off playing outside. You know, this is the, it's all about relationship. It's, uh, it's, again, it's it's, uh, Maslow before Bloom when it comes to synchronous remote learning. And I have seen amazing schools that have functioned well in face-to-face learning where relationship based education was their creed are doing just fine with remote learning.
0: Tom, we won't tell anybody that I'm not wearing any shoes at the moment. I think something that really strikes me about so much of what you're doing and the way you're approaching it is your sheer commitment to what you're doing. Why is this work so important to you?
2: That's a deep question uh, Phil, but I'll take it on. Uh, I've been asked that a number of times. you ever feel like you have a mission in life, that there's something to be done? Oh, you bet. You bet. That's my mission. So it's very purpose. This, this is very purpose-based for you. <laughs> it's a calling. Uh, it's something I feel passionate about and have for some time. And I was quite fortunate, really, Phil. Really what drives me is the development of young people and an opportunity for them to find their passion growth and their 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 best path in life. That's what really drives me. And I was quite fortunate to find PBL because that provided a vehicle for me to go into schools and do that. Rather than just talking about passion and purpose, I could talk about PBL and schools said, okay, this guy must be talking about some sort of educational practice that's useful. But So so I came in under the cover of PBL to really talk about human growth and human development. That to me is important. and. I'm actually delighted with events as transpired. I believe we're gonna look back at 2020 as the best year education ever had, because it is going to free us to go in the direction we need to go. We have too much human talent under the age of 18 that we are not using to solve the issues of the day. And I believe we really need to liberate all that talent.
0: Uh, Tom, I have a feeling that, that your purpose and and my purpose and certainly Adriano's purpose might, there might be a a Venn diagram happening there and there might be, there might be a (laughs) lot of intersection happening in, in different ways and places. What's something that you've tried in your work, particularly in PBL, that you wouldn't do again and why?
2: Well, when I first started off, just through the nature of the times in which I was working 10, 15 years ago, you know, I was very focused on, not very focused, but I needed to be focused on standards and to some extent pitched to form a project-based learning that was coverage by another name, which is really manipulation. And so I realized as I evolved and I think as education evolved, you know, I was able to let go of that, but early on PBL was very focused on covering standards and addressing standards. And of course in the US under no child left behind, it was very difficult to have any conversation education that didn't put standards foremost. So I think if I had to look back, I would have moved to this form of PBL as a human development method. And I would have accentuated that early on.
1: One of our student members of a school for tomorrow, Tom, his name is Samuel Chung. And he believes that across the globe, education needs to better equip younger generations for the future that he should have learned when he was at school about cybersecurity in response to the fintech revolution, or he should have learned around sustainable energy to offset climate change, or he should have learned how to create genetically modified food to deal with overpopulation, just to name a few things. Why do you think that schools and systems are still wedded to teaching just the past, and not enough of the today and tomorrow that is relevant and purposeful.
2: You know, I think it uh, has to do with what I mentioned earlier, Adriano. Uh, Culture shapes our brain, it shapes our thinking, it shapes our horizons, it shapes our possibilities. And I think in this 150 years or so in which we've had this form of education, or actually slightly less than that, we have, Hardened ourselves into thinking that's the way it it should go now, I think, as I said earlier, I think the hardening is softening, and I think that's going to change and that's why I say that 2020 was a good year for education, as I think you probably would agree with me it is we needed something we needed a sledgehammer, and we got it <laughs> and uh, to sort of break this apart and make things differently and and all three of us are seeing change at a rate we never would have anticipated in 2019? I think we got
1: a jackhammer more than a sledgehammer, mate. It's, uh, it definitely has been uh, an awakening of sorts. And I, and I have often spoken about, on this particular platform and, and through our work through uh, A School for Tomorrow, this notion of an educational spring, you know, that we have a responsibility now, not only to the COVID children, but to the generations that follow, to move from standards to habits. and Because habits become culture, and culture becomes part of, uh, ultimately, a way of being you know, uh, and and that is so much about what you have shared with us today. I I always enjoy the opportunities to engage with you, Tom. I really look forward to another opportunity when you're back here in Australia, or we get to get to travel to sunny California, one one of the great places in the globe uh, where we can again reconnect and and continue this conversation around the intersection of inquiry and wellbeing and and 21st century competencies. Tom, it has been a sheer delight to have you on our show. Uh, We learned so much from your great wisdom. And I know you might've said that you're in the third part or the final stage of your life, but I'm not prepared to believe that, mate. Uh, You still have so much to give. And and the purpose uh, that you have is fundamentally human-centered. And if we learn anything, anything from 2020 is that people matter. The work that you do matters. And I just want to say thank you very much for for being on our show. And and we look forward to connecting again in the future.
2: All right. Thank you both. Look forward to talking to you again. And I definitely look forward to coming back to Australia as soon as they'll let me in. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Tom.
0: The Game Changers podcast is produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions. It's powered by a schoolfortomorrow.com and circle.education. It's available on Apple Podcasts, on SoundCloud, on Spotify, and on Google. If you like what you hear, tell your friends, subscribe, like, you know what to do. Let's go.